real know-it-all. You annoy your family by shouting the answers while watching Jeopardy. You drive people crazy when you start a sentence with, well, actually, well, guess what? You can go fact yourself. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Go Fact Yourself, the show where we quiz the smartest people we know and find out why they love what they love. I'm Kitty Feldy. And now, socially distancing from our homes in Los Angeles, here's our moderator, J. Keith Van Stratton. Thanks so much, Kitty. Thank you so much for stepping in. Uh, Helen had a TV gig this week, oh, which, nice. which which apparently pays more and gives more exposure than podcasts. <laughs> I, I don't get it. Uh, but it's always a pleasure to see you, Kitty. Uh, Kitty, last time you were here, we talked about the new book that you have in your Fina Mendoza series of mysteries. And uh, that's going to be a new podcast coming out soon, another season of a podcast that you've been doing. Tell us about that. Well, season two takes us to the State of the Union address, and we get to actually hear the bird pooping on the president's head in the middle of the speech. So. That's what we've all been waiting for. <laughs> Another podcast that you do, which I find so fascinating, is this book club for kids where it is exactly what it says on the tin. Kids reading a book and discussing it. Are there things that kids notice in books that you're surprised that maybe an adult wouldn't have? All the time. I'm always yeah. surprised about the things that catch their attention. For example, we were talking about A Tree Grows in Brooklyn, which is about a young girl growing up and yada, yada, yada. And there's one tiny scene where she's sort of harassed in the hallway by this creepy guy. And that's what these seventh grade girls wanted to talk about. So it's always nice to talk to kids. It really does open your eyes to the world through their eyes. I feel the same way about cats. <laughs> Today on Go Fact Yourself, two guests will compete to answer questions about facts they know, facts they might not know, and frankly, facts they should know. Plus, we'll meet actual experts on two very different topics. And finally, we'll declare one of our guests the winner of today's show. Let's get started and meet today's guest, Kitty, who is up first. She is an actor whose many credits include Jericho, Blood and Treasure, and Why Women Kill. It's Alicia Coppola. Hello, Alicia Coppola. Hello. Oh, it's so wonderful to have you. How often do you have to tell people that you are not related to Francis Ford Coppola? Well, not often because I don't say that. Because my grandfather was orphaned in 1917 during the Spanish influenza. Oh. He was put into an orphanage in Staten Island and he was adopted out by his maternal grandmothers. Wow. We do know that there is a relation. It's just distant. Interesting. And thanks so much for bringing up another pandemic. We haven't talked yes, enough about yes, the current yes. one. So it's good, to, it's, good to, it's good to go old school on that. So my family personally has lived through two. Wow. Yes. Congratulations. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think yeah. you're going to go for a third? If I survive the Lower East Side in the early 80s, I think I'm okay. <laughs> well, there might actually have been a third. All right. Let's move yeah. on to something else. <laughs> Alicia, you have done hundreds of episodes of television, soap operas and sitcoms and dramas, but you actually got your start on a game show. Tell us about that. Oh, yes. I got my start on MTV as the hostess of Remote Control with Colin Quinn, the late, great Ken Ober, Adam Sandler, mm -hmm. Dennis Leary, Mario Joyner. I really learned a lot from those boys. I had a lot of fun. What kind of stuff did you learn? I learned how to gyrate in Lycra on <laughs> Colin Quinn's lap. <laughs> so I, life skills, really. A life skills, a lot yeah. of life skills. Yes, yeah. You know, important things that, you know, you never know you need to pick up in middle age. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was watching clips of it earlier this week, and uh, you you really know how to present a boombox with that spokesmodel uh, kind of yes. hands. Yes, yes, I had to do that. Thus, I've always had my nails. You know, on Why Women Kill, my manicure, my nails had their own trailer. <laughs> <laughs> you play a lot of uh, smart people in your roles, a lot of lawyers and doctors and Egyptologists.
apologists, how often do you not know what you're talking about when you're reading a line? Or is it important <laughs> for you to know what it the all the verbiage means? It actually is very important for me to know what it means, because if I don't know what it means, then it's like saying the word smidge over mm. and over and over again. After a while, you don't even know what you're saying. Mm. So for me, in order to understand it, case in point with blood and treasure, I mm. literally would have one side of my screen was the script and the other side was Google. And I was <laughs> learning because they yeah. borrowed so much from history. That's awesome. We talked earlier about your family. Uh, you actually wrote a book about your family that in a way you co-authored with one of them. Tell us about that. Yes. I wrote a book called Gracefully Gone. It's on Amazon. It's a good title. Thank you very much. My dad was dying of brain cancer. He was diagnosed when I was 38, and he wrote a manuscript in 1983 retrospectively documenting his first grand mal seizure through his radiation and through his mm. treatment and remission. And as he began to die, I wrote a journal documenting my experience taking care of him. So it's wow. basically a decade-long dialogue between my father and I told from two completely different points of view. Wow. Very, very cool. Uh, that must have been very um, meaningful for you to have that experience? It was. I was able to learn about my father when I was 12 as a grown woman mm. and as the I had surpassed the age that he was when he was originally diagnosed. So I had a whole new experience with my father. Geography didn't matter because I got to know him as an adult rather than the 12-year-old child that I was. What a treasure that your yeah. dad gave you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and it's really helped a lot of people. And from the publishing of that, which I did on my own because I didn't really have a high-profile show from which to platform, I became the ambassador to the Elizabeth Kugler-Ross Foundation. And I sit on the board of Heal Grief, which is really helping people come together, especially during the pandemic, so that nobody grieves alone. Wow. Very, very cool. Uh, last thing I want to ask you about, you have recently started your own podcast. It is called Bootstrap Bitch, which was almost the title of this one. So, Of course. Uh, I, yes, understand. Yes. I yeah. understand. I <laughs> understand. What does it mean to you to be a bootstrap bitch? I'm taking back the image. I'm taking yeah. back the Playboy flap and empowering that image and empowering the female literally having to pull on your boots and get mm. out there. And it was inspired by my girlfriend who, after 20 years of marriage, was pretty much left with nothing and had to move her kids into a 400-square-foot garage. Well, good for you, girl. Yeah, so it's just finding the strength and finding the light in the tunnel of darkness that I think we so often find ourselves in. Well, I'm so happy that you found your way to us today. We're so happy to have Alicia Coppola. Thank you. Kitty, against whom Alicia be competing? He is a comedian and actor who also starred on Why Women Kill, along with Nurse Jackie and Rescue Me, and whose hosting work includes Top Gear USA and the Adam Ferrara podcast. It's Adam Ferrara. Hi, pal. How are you? I've done nothing with my life. What are you talking about? I haven't wrote a book. I haven't taken back an image. I haven't empowered anybody. My father died. Didn't leave me anything. <laughs> Well, you know what? Uh, empowering isn't for everybody. Yeah, all right. Well, because Alicia's done it all. You know why? Because <laughs> she's selfish. That's why. <laughs> yes, if there's one thing that I gleaned yes. from my chat with Alicia, it's how she's only in it for herself. That's uh, it. Well, Adam, I should point out that you are the one who suggested Alicia for the show. How do you two know each other, and why did you want her to uh, compete with you on a game show? Well, we, we actually met on the set of Why Women Kill. We were told we are married. You tested with me. Yes, they had Alicia and they needed a husband and uh, I was one of the choices. So I, I think I was bachelor number one. <laughs> and there was chemistry. And the funny thing was uh, I was here with my wife 
when I got the call that we were going to test together. And my wife did the research and she goes, I think this will work out well. And then she went, uh-oh. I went, what? <laughs> she's tall. <laughs> Why is that a problem? <laughs> because you got to look together on camera. We have to look tall. I, I actually lost the job once for Aisha Tyler because I wasn't tall enough to be her boyfriend on her pilot. So, yeah. <laughs> Glamorous show business. Yeah. Let's talk about your podcast. Uh, you talk about it as Adam Ferrara and his friends, a group of people who are trying to be better people. How is that going? It's not going well at all. Oh, no. Uh, no. It's. <laughs> are you becoming worse people? Well, we, we, we're realizing that maybe being better people isn't right for everybody. Maybe this is it. <laughs> maybe we've peaked. I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's pretty much more about my neurosis. I wanted to yeah. communicate a feeling. Because when I was on the uh, on the road, podcasts kept me company. Mm -hmm. I wanted to provide that for other people to give back. So the mm -hmm. show starts with me, my wife, my two best friends talking about a topic that connects to a one-on-one -on -one interview I've done with a celebrity. And then after the interview, like any good group of friends, we talk about them when they leave. So <laughs> we do another 10 to 15 minutes. It's like coming over my house, companies coming over. And then after they leave, like, wow, that was so cool. And Alicia Coppola actually did an episode with me, made me cry, talked about oh, the really? book, talked about the father. There yeah. I am crying. She won't be back. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about Top Gear. On that show, you got to drive some amazing cars very yeah. fast. Uh, what stand out as the ones that are the most fun and maybe the ones that were the most not so fun? Fastest I ever gone was 188 uh, miles an hour in a oh Ferrari F12 Berlinetta. That's a 212 mile an hour car. And at that speed, the car starts getting light. So it starts coming up off the frame a little bit around 140. So any sudden movement means death. So I, I got to about 188 and I hit what's called a brake cone. They put a cone up where you have to start braking because you're going to yep. run out of road. So that's the fastest I've ever gone. So I would go, that's, that's one of my favorite cars. Car I hated was a Mustang 2. Should be called a Mustang number two. It's just, <laughs> what a piece of crap. But that was the premise of the show. Like we had to pick cars for the other guys on the yeah. show that we wouldn't like. And I did not like the Mustang too. You had an eclectic guest lineup on that show. Uh, people like Buzz Aldrin and Kid yeah. Rock and Cloris Leachman. Any of yeah. them particularly memorable or meaningful to you? Cloris Leachman. Cloris yeah. Leachman. God bless her. I uh, turned a 69 Lincoln into a limousine in the show. I drove Cloris Leachman to the Emmys. So Cloris was getting her makeup done, and God bless her, she likes things a certain way. And apparently, the makeup lady wasn't doing it that way. Uh-oh. So I walked in, and before I went into the room where she was getting her makeup done, I started yelling. I started going, where's Cloris? Nothing starts till I say hello to Cloris Leachman. I need to meet the legend. And I walked in. She stood up. She put her hands out, and she went, Adam. And held her hands open. And I walked out with my arms open. I grabbed her hands. I went in to kiss her. She went in to kiss me. We're about, Jake Keith, we're this far apart. I turned my head this way. I just said, oh, I'm not stopping. And I kissed her right on the mouth. <laughs> and we were friends ever since. You're a celebrity whisperer. <laughs> Yes, I'm, I'm sure you've done that with a lot of your guests. It, it, similar similar experience with Buzz Aldrin, I understand. Yeah, and then yeah. he punched me. <laughs> Last thing I want to ask you about, of course, uh, you had a great role on Nurse Jackie. Yeah. How do you hold your own with someone like Edie Falco? You're someone who came up doing stand-up, and here you are with one of the great actors of our time. That was great, because you really, I just finished Rescue Me, so that was a, a very male-driven show. Mm -hmm. That acting required pretty much me channeling my father. You know, and because I was the chief, so I had it. That was the biggest authority figure I could summon in my being, and it worked. This was even scarier because I had to be vulnerable in front of a woman that's pumping out 
enough energy to, you know, power a small New Hampshire town. So <laughs> you got to get good quick. Luckily, it found me. So I was able to rise to the occasion, but she was great. Awesome. Well, it's so wonderful that you were able to join us today. Wonderful to see you again. Adam Farrar, everybody. We ask each of you to provide us with a few topics outside your field of work in which you feel you have some expertise. Alicia, you told us you know a lot about the movie The Turning Point, high-end luxury handbags, and <laughs> continuing with that very classy, classy line, the TV shows The Real Housewives of New York and Beverly Hills. I should have included Jersey. <laughs> it's only an hour-long show, though. Uh, whereas, Adam, you said you know a lot about the Stephen Pressfield book, The War of Art, mm -hmm. the Who's album, Who's Next, mm -hmm. and continuing the classy line, the Trans Am from Smokey and the Bandit. Can I get a hell yeah? Hell yeah, indeed. Hell yeah. Later on, we're going to ask each of you some in-depth trivia questions about mm -hmm. one of those topics. But first, we're going to get your thoughts on something you might know nothing about. It's time to split some hairs with our What's the Difference round. We'll have one question for each of you, each worth up to two points. If either of you gives an incorrect answer, the other person has a chance to steal. Your topic today, Country Bumpkin. First up is Alicia. Alicia, your question comes from a listener. Who is it, Kitty? I'll let them tell you themselves. Because we have a listener recording. Listeners, if you'd like to submit a suggestion for our What's the Difference round, go to gofactorpod.com and click on Get Involved. Okay, hit it. Hey, this is Nicholas Rowe from Westport, New York, a.k.a. the anti-New York City. And this is Chris Tolman from Schoolcraft, Michigan. We don't know each other, but we both listen to Go Fact Yourself. And we each independently made the suggestion for What's the Difference. Here it is. While they both might be something you find in the country. What's the difference between straw and hay? I think I love you, Chris. You too, Nick. Thanks. Thanks. Bye. Bye. All right. Thank you, Chris and Nick. All right, Alicia, you heard them. What is the difference between straw and hay? Well, you drink out of a straw and you feed <laughs> hay to a horse. <laughs> All right. I think we were talking about more of the material that you would find in the country, uh, that kind of a straw. But do you want to give that another shot or do you want to stick with what you have? I'm going to stick with what I have. A woman with character. Indeed. All right. Well, we've got Alicia's answer. We don't technically know if she's correct or not. Adam, you can steal if you don't think she's got it exactly right. What do you think? Well, straw, I think is it's it's like you grow straw. It's like a, a crop, I think. Mm -hmm. And hay is a greeting. Like, hey! <laughs> okay. Both very interesting strategies from our guests. Uh, this segment has reached its last straw. Let's go to Kitty Feldy at the judges' table for the facts. Here are the facts. Hay is made from the leaves, beans, or grains of a plant that are usually harvested when the plant is alive. These nutritious greens are used as feed for certain farm animals. Straw is the leftover stems of plants that are baled from a plant that is dead. It is not nutritious, and so it's used as bedding or ground cover for those animals. That's right. Uh, when you go on a hay ride, you're actually probably going on a straw ride, and when you have a roll in the hay, you are probably rolling in the straw. And Kitty, let's make hay while the sun shines and find out how our guest did. I'm going to have to give one point to Alicia and half a point to Adam. All right, there you go. Up next in Country Bumpkins is Adam with Bumpkin. Adam, while either one might be caused by horsing around with your kin, as a doctor explains it to a patient, what is the difference between a bump and a lump? A bump 
and a lump. A bump you get from uh, your brother hitting you in your head, and a lump is something you have to get checked out by a sir, like by a doctor. Okay, so you wouldn't want to get a bump checked out by a doctor, especially nah, if it came a bump. From you your know brother. where it comes from. A lump is like we're going to have to run some tests. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right, we have Adam's answer. We don't know yet if he is correct. Alicia, what do you think? I would tend to agree with Adam. I think a bump is more of a hematoma, although hematomas sometimes do have to be checked out. A lump would be like a lump in your breast or a lump in your lymph node. I would think a, a lump you would need to have probably biopsied. Oh, all right. Well, uh, the second thing needs to get a bump of something. Let's go to Kitty Feldy at the judges table for the facts. Here are the facts. Neither bump nor lump are medical terms per se. In fact, the difference we're talking about isn't one you'd likely find in a medical dictionary. And it's not how doctors describe these growths to other medical professionals. But doctors will sometimes use these terms and this distinction in how they communicate to patients. And that difference is a bump grows on top of a body surface, like on the skin of your arm or the inside of your mouth. It's visible to the naked eye. A lump forms underneath a body surface. You might not see it at all and can only feel it by pressing on the area around it. And if you can see it on your arm, that means it's large enough to have pushed the skin outward. That's right. Several doctors told us this. They also told us that though most lumps and bumps are usually harmless, both could be signs of trouble. So if you have a lump or bump that is growing or changing colors, first of all, cool, but also talk to your doctor. Kitty, how did our guest do? Well, Jay Keith, for this, what's the difference? I'm going to have to say that Alicia gets no points and Adam gets no points. All right. But what is our score at the end of this round? After the first round, Alicia Coppola has one point, and Adam Ferrara has half a point. All right, but those scores are bound to change as we move on to questions about topics our guests have chosen for themselves. That's all up ahead when we come back on Go Fact Yourself. Oh, Helen Hong, I'm so glad that you're here for these ads, uh, because uh, I have a very important warning and message for our listeners. What would that be, Jakey? Uh, on our previous episode, I mentioned that people should get Magic Spoon as a holiday gift. And I think a lot of people have. And I just want to warn them, when the Magic Spoon arrives, it might be in a bright blue box that says Magic Spoon. Because that's what happened uh, at my house when my girlfriend tried to surprise me for the holidays with a big box of Magic Spoon. Yes, but you know what? It did not make it any less enjoyable because I got to audibly gasp when I saw there was a big blue box of Magic Spoon waiting for me. So do order Magic Spoon for yourself and for your loved ones for the holidays. Just know that uh, it might not be such a surprise. Anyhow, the reason we love Magic Spoon so much is because healthy breakfast doesn't have to be boring. Magic Spoon has all the amazing flavors that you love, but without all the carbs and sugar. And it's an amazing midnight snack right before bed. And Helen, he knows, he knows what he's talking about. I really do. Oh my <laughs> God, I love this stuff so much. Magic Spoon has zero grams of sugar, 140 calories, 13 to 14 grams of protein and only 4 net grams of carbs in each serving. It's keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, and low-carb. You can build your own box. Available flavors to build your very own custom bundle are cocoa, fruity, frosted, peanut butter, blueberry, cinnamon, cookies and cream, and maple waffle. Mmm. <laughs> that that's my contribution to this copy, Helen. Mm. Go to magicspoon.com slash gofact to grab a custom bundle of cereal and try it today. And be sure to use our promo code GOFACT at checkout to save five dollars off your order. 
And Magic Spoon is so confident in their product, it's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they will refund your money, no questions asked. That's magicspoon.com slash gofact and use the code gofact to save $5 off. Look out for that blue box and... Thank you, Magic Spoon. Prepare yourself for the greatest pro wrestling podcast spectacular known as Tights and Fights. A back-dropping audio showcase that helps you understand the world of pro wrestling with a lot of love and no toxic masculinity. Featuring host Danielle Radford. Time to kick butt and chew gum, and I'm all out of butts. Lindsay Cow. I'm a brutal Brit, and my fists were made to punch and hit. And Hal Loblin. I was doing the voiceover this whole time. Hear us talk about pro wrestling's greatest triumphs and failures. And make fun of its weekly absurdities. On the Perfect Wrestling Podcast. Tights and Fights. Every Saturday, Saturday, Saturday on Maximum Fun. Welcome back to Go Fact Yourself with our guests, Alicia Coppola and Adam Ferrara. Once again, here's Jay, Keith, and Stratton. Thank you, Kitty. All right, Alicia, of your many interests, you told us you know a lot about the movie The Turning Point, high-end luxury handbags, and the TV shows The Real Housewives of New York and Beverly Hills and possibly New Jersey. Let's find out a little bit more about each of those. First, tell us what the movie The Turning Point means to you. Oh, gosh. I think I saw it right when it came out in 77. Mm -hmm. I was nine years old. That was the movie. That, along with another movie, Sharky's Machine, uh, and Rachel Ward was the reason I became an actress. Wow. Um, I loved the way the story was told. I later found out that Herbert Ross, who was the director, also did another one of my favorite movies, The Goodbye Girl. I mm. just love the way he shot. I love that late 70s, 80s kinetic style of shooting. I like the rawness of it. I love the story between two women who were best friends. I love the fact that one woman, you know, would walk over her mother to get what she wanted and the other one went off and got married and had children. And that was kind of my first introduction of what it meant to be a woman mm. uh, because you you can maybe have it all, but never at the same time. Very well articulated. All right. You also said you know a lot about high-end luxury handbags. Uh, Did those also teach you how to be a woman? They do. <laughs> and teaches my husband how to go broke. <laughs> I'm a big collector. I think that bags are beautiful. I think that a bag, a certain bag can make an outfit like a Chanel bag. You know, cars, mm -hmm. the minute you drive them off the lot, they depreciate. Right, Adam? Mm -hmm. But a Chanel bag, <laughs> they've actually raised the prices recently. A Chanel bag will never depreciate. I just think they're art pieces. They're functioning art pieces. But I have to ask a woman, woman question, which is how do you remember to transfer everything you have in one bag into the other bag? I have one central bag, that, which is like my everyday bag that has all the things that my kids need in it from wipes to, you know, protein bars and snacks. And then that's my everyday bag. But when I have a special thing, a special meeting or a date night, then I just take out the things that I need and I have special inserts for the bags so that everything's yeah. always pristine. You don't put uh, gummy bears in your Louis Vuitton. I don't put gummy bears in my <laughs> Louis Vuitton, nor would I put it in a Chanel or my Fendi. No, no, no. And then finally, Alicia, you said you know a lot about the TV shows The Real Housewives of New York and Beverly Hills. I just find the lives of the women, I find them very complicated. I find the relationships between the women very complicated. I like the way they resolve their issues. I love the way they dress. I think it's high church. 
You know, there's mm. a big difference between like, you know, just going to church and hearing a sermon and going to a cathedral and having the <laughs> priests with the incense up and down yeah. and this choir and the organ. That to and me, a lot of makeup. and a lot of makeup and hair and jewelry and yeah. handbags, they're solace for my soul. Oh, how lovely. Well, to summarize, Elisa, you said you know a lot about the movie The Turning Point, high-end luxury handbags, and the TV shows The Real Housewives of New York and Beverly Hills. Today, we want to quiz you about the movie The Turning Point. <laughs> the Turning Point, of course, is about dancing. Were you a dancer? You said it inspired you to act, but what about dancing? I was in ballet until I went to boarding school at the Kent School in Connecticut. And I think I stopped dancing at around 17 because my growth ratio, I, I just mm. became too tall and I just wasn't as graceful anymore as I was wow. when I was shorter. So your height put an end to your ballet career and almost put an end to Adam getting a role Correct. on, on Why Women Kill. Wow. Correct. When, when will it stop? When will when it will, stop? Well, it stopped. It, 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 it stopped. did stop. It, okay. Yeah, it stopped. I mean, You're I, not having another growth spurt. No, ballet. no. Okay. No, I'm done growing. Yes, but that movie, I've seen it a couple times. It's no longer streaming anywhere, but I do remember, I think a couple of years ago when I was home at my mother's house in Montauk, I think it was streaming on YouTube and I was able to watch it on my laptop. Oh, wow. Interesting. All right. Well, just ahead, we're going to enlist the help of a bona fide expert in your topic to test your mastery in the subject with our expert level question worth up to three points. But before that, to let you show your love, here are five trivia questions about your topic, each worth one point. If you want it, you're allowed to hint for any two of these five questions. Now, Adam, do listen closely because if Alicia answers incorrectly, you can steal. Adam, by the way, how much do you know about the movie The Turning Point? I won't be stealing a thing. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> uh, it's that kind of confidence that we, yeah, that we respect little, Adam who, for. Uh, yeah, a a, a ballet movie in 1977. You guys call me when you're done, all right? I got to go okay, to church great. and pray to, to Mother Teresa Goodice because I had no idea that that was a religious experience. Yeah. Yes. Uh, Adam, by the way, just pulled out an iPad and is now just watching a completely different movie. And yeah. wants to be yeah. I'll be doing my laundry. Yes. Okay. Very good. All right. Here's question number one. Alicia, the turning point is about participants in the fictional American Ballet Company, but it's based on a famous real-life American ballet theater and features actual company members from that famous real-life American ballet theater. What is the name of that famous real-life American ballet theater? New York City Ballet. Incorrect. No, I'm terribly sorry. Adam, with a chance to steal. American Ballet, then. Jo the, only one, the only one I know is, is Joffrey. Kitty, is it Joffrey? It is not Joffrey. No, I'm sorry. We tried to give a subtle hint in that question. It is actually called American Ballet American Theater. American Ballet Theater. Well, yes. I said that afterward. Yes. Well, I'm sorry. We had to go with your, okay. your first answer. All right. But, fine. Well, but, okay. I like uh, a competitor, though, Alicia. Yes. Okay. Fun fact, Nora Kay, the film's producer, was a prima ballerina with American Ballet Theater and also married to the film's director, Herbert Ross. All right. Let's see if you can bounce back with question number two. One of the turning points, if you will, in the lives of two main characters in the film is the decision of who got to play a life-changing role in a ballet based on a novel by Leo Tolstoy. Anna that Karenina. Novel, that novel has been made into a movie about a dozen times, including an Oscar-winning <laughs> version in 2012 starring Kira Knightley. What is the name of this novel, ballet, and movie that plays an important part in The Turning Point? Anna Karenina. Kitty, could that be correct? It is correct. It is correct for the point. There she is, Alicia. Very well done. Fun fact, Anna Karenina is a fictional ballet in the movie, but a real ballet of Anna Karenina by Boris Eifman premiered in 2005. You did not obviously need the hint in that, but Kitty, if she had needed the hint, what would that hint have been? Oh, you're going to make me do it, aren't you? It rhymes with Blana Blarinina. Yay, you did it. 
<laughs> Again, I still wouldn't it, have gotten it. St- <laughs> well, Adam, fortunately, she didn't give you the chance. All right, Alicia, you're on a roll. Here we are with question number three. One of the highlights, or turning points, if you will, of the film is a piece in the dance gala called Ellingtonia with music by Duke Ellington. Although the credit from the show's program on screen says it was choreographed by Arnold Berger, a character in the movie, it was actually choreographed by what world-famous dancer, choreographer, and founder of a New York City dance company that still bears his name today? Yes, may I have a hint, please? Kitty, how about that first hint? His first name is the same first name as the animated animal singer who's the front man for the chipmunks. And his last name rhymes with what a native of Israel is called. Alvin Ailey. Kitty? Alvin Ailey is correct. Good use of the hint. Yay. All right, another point for Alicia. All right, here's question number four. Lisa, in the movie, that gala features performances from six other dance pieces. But which of the following was not one of them? Was it Swan Lake, Aurora's Wedding, Tchaikovsky Pas de Deux, Le Corsair, or Giselle? One of those was not in that gala scene. I'm going to say La Corsair. Kitty? That is incorrect. No, I'm terribly sorry. Adam with a chance to steal. Uh, Swan Lake. Kitty? Incorrect. No, no successful steal. There, Giselle was not in the gala. Giselle was seen in performance throughout the movie, but not part of the gala. A little bit of a tricky question there. Yeah. But it didn't cost you anything because Adam was not able to steal. Here's question number five. You do still have a hint available. Okay. Alicia, that gorgeous dancing was performed to a gorgeous soundtrack featuring work from several classical composers. What city's symphony orchestra played those works for the movie? Hint. Kitty, how about that second hint? The symphony now plays at the famous Walt Disney Hall building. Los Angeles? Kitty? That is correct. That is correct. Very nice use of the hint. That's right. The Los Angeles Symphony Orchestra did did provide that. that. It was under the direction of Lawrence Foster at the time, who is now the artistic director and chief conductor for the Polish National Radio Symphony Orchestra. All right, Alicia, you ended up doing pretty well in that. But now here's your high-level question that requires multiple answers. It is time for your cluster fact. We'll be bringing on an expert to assess your response. Oh, no. (laughs) I think you're going to do pretty well in this because you may have uh, mentioned some of this earlier. Alicia, the opening credits feature two notable on-screen pairs. First, the names of Anne Bancroft and Shirley MacLaine are shown together before the title. Then later, we see an introducing credit announcing the film debut of two other people, one of whom is Mikhail Baryshnikov. All four of those people received Oscar nominations for their performances. Your question is, for up to three points, who is the other actor introduced alongside Baryshnikov? What character does she play in the film? And though she's from America, what nationality does she pretend to be when she meets two country bumpkins in a bar? Leslie Brown. Okay. Uh, She's Shirley MacLaine's daughter, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Anne Bancroft's goddaughter. And I think she pretends to be like a Southern Belle. A Southern Belle. Okay. And any guess on the character name? Lalia. It's something like that. It's I'm it's it's I'm having a moment. I'm I'm having right. I'm having a menopausal moment. And I'm sorry, we actually cannot allow Southern Belle because we asked what nationality does she pretend to be? So she comes from oh. she, she pretends to be from a different nationality. So oh, okay. uh, see if uh, we can come up with something else. No, British. You can say British. Okay, so let's put it all together. So the actor's name is Leslie Brown. The character's name is? Escaping me. And the nationality? British. Okay. Kitty is taking note of those answers. We have an expert on hand who can tell us for sure. Kitty, who do we have tonight? Joining us tonight is an acclaimed dancer, teacher, and actor 
who earned an Oscar nomination for her film debut in The Turning Point. It's Leslie Brown. Hello. Hello, Leslie Brown. Oh, my God. I'm going to cry. Thank you so much for joining us, Leslie Brown. Elise, you tell us a little bit about what's going on with you. Why are you why are you feeling like you might cry? Because I've loved your work. I mean, it's thank you. I mean, I that movie meant so much to me. And then Dancers. I actually have the cassette tape of Dancers. Oh wow. I do. Okay. I still have that all these years. And I just loved you in that. I mean, you're you were so incandescent. And the way that you looked at Barishnikov and your pas de I mean, everything was just He's not hard to look at. No. <laughs> But the two of you together were just breathtaking. Thank you. Yeah, and I'm sorry I forgot your character's name. I'm, I'm, (laughs) please, please, no offense taken. Oh, good. Oh, good. Uh, We'll talk about the turning point in a little bit, but let's talk a little bit more about uh, you and your life. First of all, I was surprised to read that Brown B R O W N E is not your actual surname. You you chose that yourself. Tell us why. I added the E. Because when before actually the filming, I was in New York City Ballet in the Court of Ballet, and I was sitting in the audience watching a performance that I wasn't in. And somebody in the audience was looking at the program and said, oh, Leslie Brown, who is he? Ah. So I thought I'll put the E. It makes it a little more feminine. That's what I thought. Because <laughs> Leslie is both. Right. You, know? you teach now at a place called Steps, New York. What does a student of Leslie Brown learn? Oh, that's a fabulous dance studio. Yes. I also teach at the ABT school in the summer. Mm -hmm. We do the summer intensive there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's where I go. (laughs) (laughs) So Steps is a multidiscipline program. So it's got great ballet, but it also has hip hop, jazz, musical theater, tap, contemporary, like really high level, all of them. So the kids are very versatile. Mm -hmm. So I love working with the kids because they're like consummate artists, you Mm -hmm. know, so it's Instead of just ballet, 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 ballet. So I enjoy that. Very cool. People may not have realized that they've seen you before, even if they haven't seen The Turning Point or aren't as familiar with ballet, because you appeared in a very popular sitcom uh, uh, in the 1970s. Tell us about that incredible scene that you had on Happy Days. So after I did The Turning Point, of course, they wanted me to pursue acting, but I was torn in between dancing and acting. So I was putting, you know, trying different things. And so, yeah, Happy Days was the first thing I did as an actress afterwards. And it was it was a blast, except that the group was very isolated. The only one who really interacted with me was uh, Henry Winkler. Mm. Oh, what a shame. Yeah. Well, not only did you interact with him off screen, but on screen, you actually do a little ballet piece uh, with with the Fonz, uh, which is so great. Were were you concerned (laughs) that he might not catch you or be able to lift you in those uh, important moments? No, he was very, he pretended like he was a mess, you know, Mm. but we rehearsed it and he knew what he was doing, but he he was there for me. Yeah, of course, I had to do a little bit more on my own balance, you know, because he's not a professional partner, but he did very well. And then, you know, I had to kiss him. So, you know, that was kind of another hardship thing. Yeah. you know, fanning out there. Yeah, and and at the time when probably more people wanted to kiss Henry Winkler than any other time in his career. Yeah, yeah. Very cool. May I ask about your other dancing partner? I mean, one time at the yeah. very end of my ballet class, I looked out the window and there was Baryshnikov waiting to come in for the pro class. Oh. And my heart stopped right there. Yeah. What was he like to dance with? Well, first of all, I have photos from the set you know, tons of photos and looking at him and what he looked like at that time. It was like at his peak, the body, the face, everything. 
and just the way he danced, you know, he he really brought a lot of gracefulness mm-hmm. to those big tricks that he did. Mm-hmm. Mm. Dancing with him was, you know, you get elevated. You know, he's a genius. You you either elevate yourself or you feel like an idiot. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> you have to sort of rise to the occasion, which I did, you know, because my big talent is dance, you know, more than acting. I mean, I'm an actress dancer, but I think more than that is is ballet. It's like innate in me. So I could rise to that level. Of course, I learned a lot from working with him, but I was able to elevate myself in order to be able to communicate with him, which was important. Well, it was quite an elevation. That, that Your performance in this movie is astounding. And Alicia mentioned that she stopped doing ballet at 17. You did this movie when you were 17. Yes, I was in the core of New York City Ballet for a minute. It was an accident that I got the part. You know, it was originally for Gelsey Kirkland. And um, so, you know, I stepped in like three days before we started shooting, but I wanted to do it. By that time, I really believed like I knew they were looking for the person and Mm -hmm. I did a screen test. But I really, really at that point was like, I know I can do this. No one would have been able to play in that role but you. The movie wouldn't have been what it is without you in it. Because thank you, you brought an authenticity to that role mm-hmm. because it was made for you. It was autobiographical. Yeah. I mean, the whole story was about your parents and without you, it wouldn't have reached the level and it wouldn't have meant as much. Thank you. That means a lot to me. And what was that. it like for someone who hadn't done that kind of acting to have your first movie and you're having big scenes with Shirley MacLaine and Anne Bancroft? For me, you know, it wasn't that big of a deal. I just sort of Hmm. you know, acted. <laughs> the part was sort of me anyway. Right. I didn't have to stretch. And, you know, the scene with Anne Bancroft in her hotel room when I'm petting the dog, I felt very stiff in that. I mean, I didn't feel comfortable at all. Scenes with Anne Bancroft were, were harder because she herself felt uncomfortable playing a dancer. Right. Yeah. It's sort of like she wasn't sure if I was judging her or, oh. you know, whatever. I didn't feel I had an anchor like I did with some of the other actors who were more comfortable in their roles. That's a really interesting distinction. We mentioned that uh, you and several people involved with the film, in fact, there were 11 nominations for an Oscar. Uh, What was your Oscars experience like? Well, first of all, who knew? I mean, when we were making this movie, we never thought anything of it. Mm. And so when these nominations came, it was mind blowing. It was like, you got to be kidding me. You know, then we go to the Oscars and I'm sitting behind Vanessa Redgrave and Jane Fonda. And it was just I was young. Mm. You know, I didn't now I would have a different appreciation for going to the Oscars. But back then I didn't have the same, you know, awareness. But I think that I was in sort of shock. Mm. I don't think I was 100 percent in my body during the whole thing. (laughs) Wow. All right. Well, let's get to the reason we brought you here as far as our game is concerned. You heard the question that we asked of Alicia. Uh, First, we wanted to know who was the other actor introduced alongside Barishnikov in the opening credits. Kitty, what did Alicia say? Alicia said Leslie Brown. And? Correct. That is correct. Very, very (laughs) good. Next, we want to know what was the character that she played? Kitty, what did Alicia say? She said the actual name escaped her. Oh, Amelia. It was Amelia. Yes. I think Alicia just realized that a little bit too late. No point there. I'm sorry. And then finally, I wanted to know, although that character is from America, what nationality does she pretend to be when she meets two country bumpkins in a bar? Kitty, what did Alicia say? Alicia said British. And Leslie Brown? 
Russian. Russian. Dostvidanya. Dostvidanya. I remember now. <laughs> I told you. I haven't seen it in years. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, that, that was that was definitely the trickiest part of the question. Before yeah. we let you go, uh, Ms. Brown, Alicia, is there anything you'd like to ask or say to our expert while we have her here? I can't even tell you how grateful I am and how super fortunate I feel to be able to meet you through Zoom and to tell you to your face how much you inspired me and how much this oh. nine-year-old girl loved you. Oh, well, thank you so much. I appreciate that. And I appreciate your career as well. Thank you. So thank you. Yes, mutual admiration. Thank Yay, you very that's much. what we love here. <laughs> Leslie Brown, if people want to find out more about you or your work, where can they do that? They can contact Steps, steps at nyc.com. I have an Instagram page. They can message me. It's my name. Steps. Excellent. It is definitely worth finding, Leslie Brown. We're so happy that you made your way to us. Thanks so much for joining us, Leslie Brown. You're welcome. All right, Kitty, what is our score at the end of that round? At the end of that round, Alicia Coppola has five points and Adam Ferrara has half a point with a round of questions for Adam coming up. That's right. We'll talk with Adam about a topic he knows about. Plus later, Alicia and Adam will go head to head in our fast facts round all to find a winner on Go Fact Yourself. This episode is supported in part by Get Abstract. Abstract? Like abstract art? No! Abstract. Like a summary of the contents in a book, article, or speech. Of course. Get Abstract. Get Abstract finds, rates, and summarizes the top business books, articles, and video talks into 10-minute abstracts to help people make better decisions in business and in their private lives. That's right. Get Abstract offers over 22,000 text and audio summaries in areas such as leadership, finance, innovation, health and science, and more. Get a free month of Get Abstract by visiting getab.li slash gofact. That's G-E-T-A-B dot L-I slash go fact for a free month. A free month. Thank, Thank you. you. Get, Get abstract. abstract. Hey there, beautiful people. I'm Travel Anderson. And I'm Jared Hill. We are the hosts of Fanti, the show where we have complex and complicado conversations about the gray areas in our lives, the things that we really, really love sometimes, but also have some problematic feelings about. Yes, we get into it all. You want to know our thoughts about Nicki Minaj and all her foolishness? We got you. You want to know our thoughts about gentrification and perhaps some positive question mark Uh aspects of gentrification? We get into that too. Every single Thursday, you can check us out at MaximumFun.org. Listen, you know you want it, honey, so come on and get it. (laughs) Period. Welcome back to Go Fact Yourself with our guests, Alicia Coppola and Adam Ferrara. And once again, here is J. Keith and Stratton. Thank you so much, Kitty. Adam, of your many interests, you told us you know a lot about the Stephen Pressfield book, The War of Art, mm-hmm. the Who's album, Who's Next, and the Trans Am from Smokey and the Bandit. Let's find out a little bit more about each of those. First, tell us what the Stephen Pressfield book, The War of Art, means to you. It was really good because when I would try to write something, when I first started doing stand-up, I was like, why can't I write? Why can't I just focus and do anything? And I had ADD, and I had it like way before it was cool. So I thought that was it. But he actually named that force that keeps you from a creative endeavor. He named it resistance. And he just kind of articulated what was going on in my head. And I got to have him on my podcast. Oh, very cool. So you met him before. Alicia Coppola, 
uh, was one of my yes. early guests, as well as uh, Stephen Pressfield. They were both authors, but Alicia made me cry. Okay. <laughs> Not Stephen Pressfield. He made no. you write. Yeah. All right. Next, you said you know a lot about the Who's album, Who's Next? The Columbia Record and Tape Club. You get 10 albums for a penny. <laughs> uh-huh. Look at Kitty. And- she knows. <laughs> what is it about the album Who's Next that means so much to you? That organ that opens and closes the album. The first track is Baba O'Reilly, and the last track is Won't Get Fooled Again. It was a pile driver into my head mm. that it just it just hit me when I was wide open. I had knee surgery when I was a kid, so I was laid up for the summer. So my parents bought me a Les Paul, and it looked like it was a Sunburst Les Paul, which is pretty the standard. Yes, yeah, yeah. stand, standard rock and roll equipment, right? Uh, so I was laid up. I listened to that album and I saw pictures of Pete Townsend windmilling his arm. That album just it just split my head open. Wow. All yeah. right. And then finally, you said you know a lot about the Trans Am from Smokey and the Bandit. I've never seen my father laugh for a sustained <laughs> period of time as he did watching that movie. And that car was so cool when you were a kid. You know, look, it's not like it's not like seeing when you're a nine year old girl seeing a dance movie. I don't know if it's the same kind of emotional impact. It sounds like it might be. Well, can I just tell you it was the same year, 1977. Yes, it was. So so we both had a moment. We did. We did. I think what a year it was. We were on either side of the park, but we both had a moment. <laughs> All right. So to summarize, Adam, you told us you know a lot about the Stephen Pressfield book, The War of Art, the Who's album, Who's Next, and the Trans Am from Smokey and the Bandit. Today, we're going to quiz you about the Who's album, Who's Next. Let's do it, baby. Let's do it, baby, indeed. Did you become a Who fan after listening to that album? You yes. The other I became a Who well? fan. But that and Billy de Blasio played my generation for me for the first time in his room <laughs> when I was a kid. And I heard that Entwistle bass solo. First time I ever heard it. I'm like, holy shit. It was the same thing that happened to me when I saw Richard Pryor for the first time. I remember saying out loud, look what this man can do. Wow. It was just like I could not believe that kind of divine inspiration was delivered to me through human talent. And this guy, yeah. it was just it, just it was just great. All right. Well, just ahead, we're going to enlist the help of a bona fide expert in your topic with our three-part question. But before that, to give you a chance to show off, here are five trivia questions about the topic. If you want it, you'll let a total of two hints in these five questions. Got it. Now, Alicia, do listen closely because you can steal if Adam gets any wrong. Alicia, by the way, how much do you know about the Who's album, Who's Next? Not a thing. Not a thing. All right. All right. Well, let's see. If Adam gives you the chance to uh, jump in. Adam, here's question number one. Good. Even people who haven't heard this album have very likely heard at least two of the songs as they've been used as the theme music for a franchise of TV shows on CBS about crime scene investigators. Mm-hmm. What is this franchise known as? Uh, CSI? Kitty? That is correct. That is correct for the point. Fun fact, two of the songs on this album were used for CSI Miami and the other for CSI New York. Other Who songs not on this album were used for the original CSI and CSI Cyber. And according to IMDb, Alicia Coppola has been on two of those shows. Yes, she has. And Townsend's cash and checks, baby. (laughs) Les Moonves got him to play at the upfront. All right, here's question number two. Another popular song on the album is Behind Blue Eyes, which could have been about any three of the blue-eyed members of the band, but probably not about which member who had brown eyes and played drums. Keith Moon. Kitty? That is correct. That is correct. It was Keith Moon. Fun fact, Roger Daltrey was very aware of Keith Moon's eyes, saying in an interview, quote, Moon's eyes had a look. You rarely see it, but when you do, you see this incredible depth. Every facet of life was in his eyes. Joy, humor. It was almost like he was schizophrenic in a lot of ways. Always different. 
All right. Here's question number three, Adam. The only solo songwriting effort on Who's Next credited to bassist John Entwistle is a song called My Wife. (laughs) Sorry, I couldn't resist. It's called (laughs) My Wife. In the song, Entwistle describes his fear of an enraged spouse who is coming after him and lists several things he's going to use to protect himself. But which of the following is not one of them? Is it a tank, a bulletproof vest, a judo expert, an aeroplane, or a fast car? I'm going to say judo expert. Kitty? That is not correct. No, I'm terribly sorry. Alicia with a chance to steal. A tank. Kitty? That is not correct. No. no, I'm terribly sorry. Adam thinks he knows it now. What is it, Adam? Well, was, uh, I'm singing in my head. Gonna buy a tank and an aeroplane. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If she gets up with me, she's going to drive me insane. Give me please protection. I'm going to say uh, bulletproof vest. Yes, bulletproof vest yeah. was the correct answer. That's not in there. I'm sorry you didn't get it in time, though. No. Uh, no point there. I couldn't uh, sing fun- it quick enough. <laughs> fun fact, John Entwistle had been married for four years when The Who recorded My Wife. Perhaps not surprisingly, that marriage did end in divorce. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> aeroplane and tank notwithstanding. All right, Adam, let's see if you can bounce back with question number four. You still have your two hints available. Thank you. Some people are still confused about the album's opening track, which is not, as many believe, called Teenage Wasteland. It is, of course, called Baba O'Reilly. That confusion is understandable, though, because neither Baba nor O'Reilly are in the lyrics. But what person's name is? Now I got to sing this song quick. <laughs> <laughs> or you could ask for your hint. Yeah, hint. Kitty, how about that first hint? It's Charlie Brown's sister, or the first name of talk show host, Jesse Raphael. Sally. Kitty? That is correct. That is correct. Excellent use of the hint. The fun fact is that verse two begins, Sally, take my hand. Sally, take my hand. Oh, okay, good. I was just verse. I was yeah. just through the first verse, and then in my head, the, the guy's name was Britt. Never mind. It's a whole story that no one's interested in. Let's talk about handbags. This is what the show's all about, celebrating mm-hmm. degree. Boy. Yeah. yeah. All right, here is question number five. You still have your second hint available. Sally is a character from a sci-fi opera movie that Pete Townsend was working on, many of whose songs ended up on Who's Next. Nearly 30 years after the album, Townsend released a six-CD set chronicling that original work. Mm -hmm. What was the announced name of that sci-fi opera, and what was the project tentatively named before it was called that? Yeah, I'm going to take the hint. Kitty, how about that second hint? The announced name sounds a lot like a tall, narrow building with a beacon used to guide ships at sea. And the tentative name is what you would call a kid whose proper name is Robert. Okay, Lifehouse mm-hmm. was the original one. And Bob? Kitty? That is correct. That is correct. It was actually Bobby, but Kitty's going to give it to you. Yes, Bobby. it was originally called Bobby. Fun fact, that six CD set is called The Lifehouse Chronicles. That Yeah, that I knew. The Bobby, I didn't yeah. yeah. It includes several early demos of songs that made it to the Who's Next album. It's become a bit of a collector's item. It sold recently on eBay for $495. All right, Adam, you did quite well in that round, but now here is your expert-level question that requires multiple answers. It is time for your cluster fact. We'll be bringing on an expert to assess your response. Adam, on the back cover of the album, 12 people's names are mentioned in the album's credits. Mm. Four of them are members of The Who, Mm -hmm. and two are other musicians who played on the album. That leaves six names. For up to three points, what are any three of those six remaining names, which include a photographer who was nominated for multiple Grammy Awards and a producer and engineer who was in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Ethan Russell took the photo and Glyn's Johns was the producer. I know Leslie West played guitar on it, but you said you said that. Yeah, any other non-musician. I'm going to go with Glyn Johns and Ethan Russell. 
And we need one more name of somebody else who was on that uh, in the credits there. In the credits. Um, yes. Kit Lambert was the first producer. I don't know if he got any credit for it. So I'll say Kit Lambert. All right. Kitty is taking note of those answers. We have an expert on hand who can tell us for sure. In fact, we have two. Kitty, who do we have tonight? Joining us tonight are two of the names who made Who's Next, the incredible album that it is. Legendary rock and roll photographer, Ethan Russell, and legendary rock and roll producer and engineer, Glenn Johns. Holy s***! (laughs) (laughs) Hello, Ethan Russell, and hold on, let's get Glenn. Howdy, howdy. And there's Glenn Johns. Holy s***! I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yes, we can. Okay, uh, Adam is having a bit of a reaction, Adam. Go ahead. Wow! Okay, first of all... I, I have I, the sound man. I have your book. I have a thank you for thank you for the music. Thank you for the pictures. Quadrophenia. You guys chat amongst yourselves. Ethan, Quadrophenia. <laughs> the book you did in Quadrophenia. I still have my original one. I got it from the Columbia Record and Tape Club. It's a long story, but I'm very happy to meet both of you gentlemen. You brought a lot of joy to my life. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you. Really? All right. Well, we're going to talk specifically about the album in a moment, but just to give our listeners a little bit of background, Ethan, of course, in addition to this cover, also shot covers for the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, worked with Janis Joplin, the Eagles, nominated for two Grammys. Glenn, you've also worked with the Rolling Stones, Eric Clapton, the Eagles, Led Zeppelin, the Beatles, and the Clash, and are in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yeah, he wow. is. Pretty good. Now, Glenn, what did it mean to you to be inducted into the Rock Hall? I believe that was the first time that they inducted people who had worked as engineers. What did it mean to me? It was obviously a huge honor. Interestingly, prior to being inducted, I'd always thought the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame was a load of old nonsense. But the minute, the minute I got inducted, I, I thought, oh, it's pretty cool. You know? <laughs> <laughs> pretty. No, exactly. Yeah, yeah. You've said before that your job is to capture what the artists are doing, uh, which seems so simple. But why is it so hard, especially with rock and roll, to, to capture the, the feel of a live performance? I think it's incredibly simple. Listen, I've been really fortunate. I've worked with some incredibly good bands. The way recording has gone in the last 20 years or more, you don't rely on the musicians to give you the sound that you make the record from. Mm. The engineers now and producers create new sound using instruments. I'm very lazy. I can't be dealing with that. I put a microphone (laughs) up and turn it up. (laughs) It seems to work quite well. (laughs) You're very modest. Uh, You (laughs) developed a way to record drums that was called the Glyn Johns Method. It's still used today. Can you briefly describe what the Glyn Johns Method is? Is it just putting up a microphone and turning up the volume? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> no, it's it, it's about as simple as it gets. People tend to overcomplicate things. I was the first person, I think, to record drums in stereo. Mm. People didn't used to use a lot of microphones on drums, and then all of a sudden they felt that they had to put a microphone on every drum. I never did that. I used three mics and I split them in stereo, so the drum sound got a bit wider in the stereo. I was recording the drums in the normal way in mono, and I took one of the microphones that I was using on the drums and put it up on Jimmy Page to do an acoustic guitar overdub. Finished that, we went on to the next backing track. I put the microphone back on the drums, and while I got back into the control room, it was assigned to one side of the stereo, and I turned the drum mics up, and all of a sudden the drum sound was across, you know, one side (laughs) of the stereo. I yeah. thought, blimey, that sounds good. I wonder what would happen if I put the other one on the other side. And that's literally, mm. you just put microphones up. I never did anything, you know. <laughs> Very cool. Well, uh, music uh, has become a family business for you. Tell us a little bit about what your son does. He's followed in my footsteps, bless him. There's a major difference. First of all, he's a very nice chap. And secondly, <laughs> he's an extremely talented musician. He plays pretty much anything, but guitar and drums are two of his best instruments, I suppose. His name is Ethan. Ethan Russell is with us. Ethan Russell is not your son, but your son, <laughs> Ethan, 
it has something in common with Ethan Russell. Tell us what the connection is. When when my son Ethan was born, Ethan Russell and I were very, very close friends. And Ethan was living in England at the time. And my then wife decided that it would be good to call our new son the same as Ethan Russell. I think she probably fancied him. I don't know. It's probably something. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Ethan Russell became my son Ethan's godfather. So, oh, how lovely. Yeah. What a lovely connection. Uh, all right, Ethan, let's talk with you a little bit more. Your photos have been on the cover of Rolling Stone. They're in the Smithsonian, and you recently compiled them into a book. Tell us a little bit about that book, which is so gorgeous and also includes some of the stories behind these photos. I had done several <laughs> books, but I actually wanted to be a writer, not a photographer. And so my first books had a lot of writing in them, but I have an 18-year-old son. I'm an old dad. And when I got to the point, and I realized I'd never done a book of just my phot photographs. So that was the motivation for it. I produced it myself. I had it printed. I did everything because I really wanted it to be what I wanted it to be. And so it's my, it's, it is my book of photography, and it has most of the people you mentioned, and plus some others as well. Very cool. Uh, that book is available on EthanRussell.com. We mentioned that you'd been nominated for a couple Grammys. One was for another Who album. The other was for directing a music video. Tell us about how you came to direct it. Well, with, with thanks to the work that Glenn was doing, among other things, with that whole period of time where, for me, the real writers of my generation were the singer-songwriters. Mm -hmm. And it's an interesting to me that the time that a lot of this early music was going on, television wasn't quite what television became. Mm -hmm. It wasn't the thing against which everything else was was sort of measured or excluded or included, et cetera. And there was this little window, and I thought, wouldn't it be great if you could bring some of this writing to the television environment? And so that's when I started. And then MTV came along, and MTV kind of took it like soccer barrel into the promotional marketing media, which was not quite what matters to me. But I was very interested for that reason. I thought the singer-songwriters were very important to me and my generation. And uh, the video you got nominated for directing was the Hank Williams Jr. Tear in My Beer. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a bizarre thing, but you could still see it. It's got something like 8 million views. I mean, a lot, right? Nobody knows if things are going to succeed before you do them, of course. But actually put his father into a video with him so they're actually playing together because that's the single, in fact. Hank had done exactly that. He had found an old track of his father's and then he dubbed uh, his voice into it. So, and it was successful. It's entertaining to this day. It, it really is. Absolutely. You both are featured heavily in this new Peter Jackson Beatles documentary called Get Back on Disney+. Plus. Uh, it's not out as we record this, but it is supposed to be amazing. Yeah, I did all the Let It Be photography with Glenn. Glenn was there. You know, Glenn and I were thick as thieves. And, and uh, I was there basically for the duration of Let It Be. And the Beatles who control all that have now decided to release the book of it and all the rest of it. And so I was interviewed along with everybody else who was part of that project by Peter Jackson, and which was, I got to say, the guy's a genius, and it was an honor to be interviewed by him. So I look forward to what it's going to be. Six hours, thank you very yeah. much. <laughs> You've described yourself as an unskilled photographer, at least when you were starting out, and that uh, rock and roll photographer was sort of a new job title that hadn't existed before. That sort of unskilledness, if you will, w you use that to your advantage. Tell us about that. When I was a young man on my parents' ranch in Carmel Valley, I used to hunt blue jays, right? And when I later thought about what it was like for me to take a picture, it was exactly that. Hmm. You know, you can't move quickly. You have to be quiet. You have to be on the edge. You get one chance. Mm -hmm. That's the way I photographed for the longest time. And if you're around great people, 
and you're in the places that I got to be, then they take care of the rest. Yeah, well, well, some of your shots, especially of these bands in concert, are, are just so dynamic and have so much energy. And Adam was talking earlier about he only needed to see a still photo <laughs> of the Who playing their guitars to, to to feel that kind of energy and feel moved by it. It's hard to tear yourself away from the you know the people in front of you, especially when they've got such magnetic personalities there. Um, well, let's talk about Who's Next with both of you. How did each of you get involved in working on Who's Next, uh, Glenn? I'd worked with the Who. Right at the very beginning of their career, you mentioned my generation earlier on. I was the engineer on that and pretty much all the early singles. When Shell Tell Me, an American, was producing them, in fact. Uh, and then Shell departed and eventually Pete called me and said, asked me if I'd like to make an album with them. And I said, yeah, it was as simple as that. We'd known each other since we were kids, in fact. We, we, we were both in... The, who was originally called the High Numbers, and we were both on the same circuit, little pro, semi-pro bands. Then I engineered the records, and we we were pals basically. And I was getting a reputation because I'd made so many Rolling Stones records and so on. So I guess I was a pretty obvious choice. <laughs> we talked earlier about how uh, there was this Lifehouse project that Townsend had worked on and took some material from that to make uh, Who's Next. And I understand that you actually used some of the original demos that Townsend had made. You'd said he made great demos, and that proved very helpful in the production of Who's Next? Oh, very helpful is an understatement. It's, it, they, <laughs> they were essential. They were quite remarkable. I mean, the guy's genius. It's not a word I value about, but the guy is absolutely genius. He'd recorded all the demos, and the, certainly the synthesizer elements of them were, were extremely complicated to recreate. And frankly, there was no need to, because I could steal them off his demos. His demos recorded on a multi-track machine. So, I mean, Won't Get Fooled Again was actually, I played the synthesizer part into the band. They all played to it live. Wow. Like like karaoke almost. Like they, they, they had the synthesizer tracks. And then... Nowadays, everybody records one thing at a time. Right. But it's completely different and far better for rock and roll, in my view, yeah. to have everybody playing at once. And Ethan, let's talk about how you got involved with this. I got a call from Glenn. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> it's so easy sometimes to get to legendary gigs, isn't it? Well, well we were friends already. And the, the Who had, in fact, if I remember correctly, tried to get several album covers unsuccessfully. And, and Glenn, I think, suggested me and I came in and I met Pete. And I was already a bit on about this idea of trying to, to take whatever they were writing about and somehow or another reflect that on the cover. And that's mm. how that got started. But the cover itself was complete accident, completely, you know, improvised on the moment. I like to say, how do you have that idea? You can't have that idea. That's not an idea. And for those not familiar with it, it is the band seeming to have just urinated upon an obelisk. Right. And <laughs> from if you've seen 2001, that would be yes. the association. And so that just happened very willy-nilly. But the way I got started working with P was through Glenn. Very cool. Well, let's get to the reason that we brought you both here as far as our game is concerned. You heard the question that we asked of Adam. We wanted to know who are three of the six non-musicians listed on the back of the Who's Next album. Kitty, what was the first answer that Adam gave us? The first answer was Ethan Russell. And Mr. Russell, is that correct? That's correct. That is correct. That was you, Adam, raising his hands in triumph. All right, Kitty, what was the next answer that Adam gave us? Adam said Glyn Johns. And Glyn Johns, is he correct? Oh, I think so. 
<laughs> I know it was, it was 50 years ago, but yes. It's I think difficult it, to remember. Yeah, We can give him the point of that. I, I want to share that uh, when we were, when we talked with you before the show, uh, you didn't actually know how you were credited on the record. You didn't know that you were listed as an associate producer. I do remember that, that Kit Lambert and Chris Stout had got an associate producer credit yeah. on it. I don't own a copy of Who's Next. I mean, I, I've got it digitally somewhere on my computer, but... I never listened to it, but it is a remarkable record. Don't misunderstand me. I think yeah. it's a great record, but I don't, I don't actually have a, I don't own the sleeve. So Interesting. All right. So that's another point there for uh, Adam and Kitty. What was the final answer that Adam gave? Kit Lambert. And gentlemen, is that correct? Yes, yeah. it is. Yes, it is correct. Uh, the other names on that uh, record were Chris Stamp and Pete Cameron and John Kosh. Adam, before we let our experts go, is there something you'd like to ask or say to them while we have them here? Gentlemen, the art you guys created spoke to me still at this age. I, I retreat to it when I'm confused. It's a light in the darkness for me. I was really lucky to be in the room, mate. I tell you, it was fantastic. Yeah. Adam is beaming, smiling, listening to the two of you. And I think a lot of our listeners are as well. It was an incredible honor and treat to have both of you. Ethan, if people want to find out more about you or your work, where can they do that? EthanRussell.com. And Glenn? I don't have any, I don't believe in any of this, any of this nonsense. No, I, I mean, you can look me up online, I suppose, but there's no yeah. way of communicating. I don't want anyone communicating with me. All right. Uh, and he just hung up. Okay. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> yes. No, but you can pretty much listen to any of the greatest rock albums of the last 50 plus years, and uh, you'll be able to understand Glenn's work. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it so much. Thank you, everybody. Hey, my pleasure entirely. Yeah. Thank you. All right, Kitty, what is our score as we go into the final round? Well, going into the final round, Alicia Coppola has five points, and Adam Ferrara has seven and a half points. All right, now it is time for our final round we call Fast Facts. I'll read ten statements, and each contestant will answer with true or false. I'll start with Alicia and alternate between each guest. Each correct answer is worth one point. Again, the answer to each statement is true or false. Here we begin. Alicia, Apple makes a product called the iPhone. Correct. Adam, Apple called the very first iPhone the iTelephone. False. Correct. Alicia, Apple called the very first iPhone the Apple phone. True. Incorrect. No, it was was just iPhone. That's okay. Adam, Apple called the second iPhone the iPhone 2. False. Correct. Yeah, they called it the iPhone 3G. Alicia, Apple had an iPhone called the iPhone 8. True. Correct. Adam, the phone after the iPhone 8 was the iPhone 9. False. Correct. Yeah. Alicia, the phone after the iPhone 8 was the iPhone 10. True. Correct. Yes, it was written as iPhone X, the Roman numeral for 10, but it was called iPhone 10. Adam, the latest iPhone model is the iPhone 14. False. Correct. Alicia, the latest iPhone model is the iPhone 13. True. Correct. Adam, there's a model of the phone called the iPhone 13 Pro Max. True. Correct. Alicia, it's much more popular than the iPhone 13 Anti-Max. False. Uh, True. Adam, and even more popular than the iPhone 13 Anti-Mask. False. Oh, sorry. I'm sorry. I'm stunned. I just met Glenn John and Ethan Russell over the freaking (laughs) computer. I'm not even here. You guys go chat amongst yourselves. (laughs) I'm having a stroke. 
All right, we're not going to count those last two anyway. I want to thank Alicia Coppola and Adam Ferrara as Kitty tabulates the final score. Kitty, are you ready to announce the winner of today's show? At the end of the game, Alicia Coppola has nine points and Adam Ferrara has 12 and a half points. Oh, congratulations, Adam. You were the facting champion on Go Fact Yourself. Adam, what will you do with your championship? I will share it with Alicia Coppola. <laughs> oh, how lovely. Alicia, would you have done the same thing with Adam? Absolutely. I love him. Oh, oh. friends and love. We love it. We just want to leave everyone on the call here a chance to promote anything they might like. Alicia Coppola, what do you have going on? Where can people find you and your work? Please find me at uh, Instagram at Alicia underscore Coppola. And please uh, go subscribe and like on um, Apple Podcasts, Bootstrap, Bit- and listen every Thursday or when I remember to put them out on Thursdays, the full episodes. (laughs) Well, we're so happy that you remembered to join us today, Alicia Coppola. Adam Farrar, where can people find you and your work? I am at Adam Ferrara on all social media. Uh, my, my tour dates are up at my website. Uh, hopefully I'll be coming to a town near you. Please come and see me and say hello. The Adam Ferrara podcast is available wherever you get your podcast. It's called 30 Minutes You'll Never Get Back. Oh, well, we're certainly happy that we had these many minutes with you today, Adam Ferrara. Ladies and gentlemen, my hosting partner today has been the lovely Miss Kitty Feldy. Kitty, where can people find you? Oh, you can find me at, at Kitty Feldy on Twitter. You can find me on Facebook. But look at the Fina Mendoza mysteries. That's the hashtag and that's the at to really find me everywhere. Awesome. Well, we're so happy we found you again here with us, Kitty Feldy. And me, you can find me on Twitter at J underscore Keith, on Instagram at jkeith.net, all spelled out. That just leaves me to thank Adam Ferrara, Alicia Coppola, Leslie Brown, Ethan Russell, Glenn Johns, and thank you for listening and supporting our show at MaximumFun.org. I'm J. Keith Van Stratton. Good night. Like what you hear? Come see us live someday. Oh, please, I hope it's going to happen. It'll be free. Go to gofactorpod.com for our schedule and tickets. Meanwhile, please like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter and Instagram, all at gofactorpod, update our wiki at gofactorwiki.fandom.com, and buy our T-shaped shirt at maxfunstore.com. And give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, like Morglaff113 did. He, she, or they said, absolutely love this podcast, having listened to every episode since the first episode, and I can't get enough of it. Aw, thanks, Morglaff113. We can't get enough of your kindness. Kitty? Go Fact Yourself is a panel quiz show devised and produced by Jim Newman and J. Keith Van Stratton, and comes to you via transcription from various homes across the country. Questions were compiled by the Trivia Industrial Complex. We are produced in collaboration with Maximum Fun. Maximum Fun's senior producer is Laura Swisher. Associate producer and editor is Julian Burrell. Our show engineer is Dave McKeever. Our theme song and incidental music were written and performed by Jonathan Green. Research assistance provided by Adam Needif. Quiz assistance provided by Mike Avellanos and Christian Malmeen. Promotional graphics by Erich Tran. Added support from Dave Bianchi and Christine Vallada. Special thanks to Susie Riefenhauser, Marketing Director at Steps on Broadway, Ethan Johns and Jennifer Tippolo, and Dave Cass. I've been Kitty Feldy. Let's go listen to Who albums. Hey, let's dance ballet to them. Oh. Maximumfun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.